Francis Weller, welcome to the new school. Pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you. Let's start kind of locally. Um, you and your wife, Judith, um, live in an 800-square-foot cabin in Forestville, right? Correct. Right up the road from us. Right up the road. Yeah. We had to take a few extra roads to get down here today, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, I learned over lunch that Judith's family came to Bolinas in 1958. And Judith, where are you? Oh, there you are. And Judith called in the alarm for the fire that burned down Tarantino. Oh. <laughs> Is that not amazing? I just find that astonishing. That's old history. What year was that, roughly? That was like... Six. Seventy-four. March. March of seventy-four. This was a big deal. The fire that burned down Tarantino's. Was a, Tarantino's was a seafood place, and a storied seafood place. But anyway, Judith has many fond memories of Bolinas. So, Francis, you and Judith uh, live up in Forestville, and you've been doing really interesting soul-focused psychotherapy for a long time. Yes. Since um, 1983, I began my practice. And I think slowly over time, you begin to track what has meaning for the people you're sitting with. And I had some very uh, helpful mentors to teach me what to pay attention to while I was sitting with people. And I shared a little story over lunch, and I'll share it with you too. One of the first mentors I sat with was a, uh, a Jungian analyst by the name of Clark Berry. And I was only 27 when I got licensed, uh, which I'm still shocked that they gave me a license at 27. <laughs> but they did. And I was smart enough to know I didn't know how to sit with people yet. And so I connected up with Clark and uh, the very first time we sat down together, he reached over and patted this very large rock that he had next to him. He said, I operate at geologic speed. And if you're going to work with the soul, you need to learn this rhythm because this is how the soul moves. It hates this thing. And he pointed to his clock. So that was one of the most beautiful teachings to give this young man who was about to embark on this career of sitting with people. And I tell that story to almost every person I sit with, partly because when they come in the room, there's this urgency to change. And the urgency is almost always sitting on a premise that I don't belong. And I better fix myself in order to be able to be led into the circle. That sound familiar? So I want to disavow that premise from the very beginning when I'm working with people. And so teaching them to slow down and begin to listen to what the soul is saying in the symptom, in the trouble that brought them in the room, that's where I, that's where I begin. You've written this beautiful book. Uh, Thank you. Called Entering the Healing Ground, Grief, Ritual, and the Soul of the World. And actually, the, it's been revised. I, I was reading the first version and have been now reading the second, which added two chapters and, and made a few other revisions. Um, 
And the book starts with, um, with a recommendation that with grief that it, it starts with speaking about it. Yeah, there's a sweet little poem. It's an excerpt from a poem of Denise Levertov's, and she said, to speak of sorrow works upon it, moves it from its crouched place, barring the way to and from the soul's hall. Hmm. To speak of sorrow works upon it, moves it from its crouched place, barring the way to and from the soul's hall. And most of us are dealing with a lot of congested grief. So in some ways, that's interfering with that relationship with soul. So one of the first things we need to do is learn how to speak of sorrow. Mm. And then you suggest, and this is really quite original to me, that, that um, there are actually five principal gates to grief. And uh, really, most people only think of the first. Correct. What are those five? Well, the first gate is one that we all are familiar with, and it's really the only one that's culturally acknowledged, which is when we lose something or someone that we love. And that's the grief that we are allowed to deal with. We have rituals for that. We have funerals. We have some way of acknowledging that loss. But the other four gates are basically invisible. Mm -hmm. The second gate is the gate that has to do with those parts of us that have never known love or have lived outside of love's embrace. In other words, every one of us was taught in some fashion that some part of you was not acceptable, right? And so all those pieces that go into what I call the wasteland, those are losses. Like I lost my ability to really express my sorrow in my family. Particularly for a young man, that's not an appropriate thing to do. So to move that out of my the relationship I had to my own heart and to my own soul, that's a loss. Now, the proper response to any loss is grief. But the problem is we can't grieve for something that we hold with judgment or contempt. That's the predicament. So most of the people who come into my practice come in with a concern primarily around depression. But with a little bit of attention, what we're really saying is, what they're dealing with is undigested sorrow. And the root of the word grief comes from the Greek word gravis, which means heavy. That's where we get the word gravity, grave. That's where we get the idea of gravitas for someone who knows how to walk in that territory. They come back with gravitas. But this weightiness that is part of this undigested sorrow begins to depress us. And that's probably what ends up getting our attention, is that we feel weighted down and depressed. Mm. So does that clear the second gate of grief? The third gate is what I call the sorrows of the earth. Driving down here today, we apologize for every roadkill we see. You know? This is part of the earth's sorrow. Every day we see this. Every day we hear about something that's happening in our world that diminishes the diversity of the species. It diminishes the beauty of, of uh, whole landscapes through mountaintop removal or whatever it is. This is felt in our bodies. This is registered in our psyche one way or the other, either by a numbing down or an avoidance. And this grief has to be registered, otherwise 
the sorrows of the earth will not be addressed. James Hillman once said, the sign of a soul awake is outrage. And how do we stay awake if we are constantly going into anesthesia and amnesia, the two main sins of our culture? We forget and we go numb. So this third gate is very, very essential for us to, as adult men and adult women, to address. The fourth gate's a little tricky to speak about. It has to do with something I've slowly intuited over time is that when we arrived here on this planet, we came with certain expectations. We arrived, as R.D. Lang said, we arrived as Stone Age children. And that Stone Age inheritance expected to see when it opened its eyes, a village. It expected to participate in everything that our deep time ancestors did. Gathering food together, sharing rituals of celebration and sorrow, dancing together, sitting around the fire under the stars, admiring, the, seeing the stars. This is our innate biological, psychological, and spiritual inheritance. And for the most part, almost none of it took place. This is a profound grief that we don't even know how to name. But we feel this fog around us that something essential is missing. And the worst part of this grief is that we blame ourselves for the circumstance. What did I do wrong? That I don't feel at home here. That I don't feel like I belong to the village. Well, where the hell is the village? That's part of what I admire about Commonweal is that you really are attempting to create some semblance of the village structure. You know. So that's the fourth, is that clear? Mm -hmm. It's a little hard to name, but it's a very essential one. And the fifth gate is what I call ancestral grief. And this is the grief that has many faces as well. Uh, part of it is that all of us come from tribal cultures. If we go back far enough, we were all tribal people. And at some point, that relationship to land, to language, to ritual, to song, to story was broken. Sometimes by necessity, but there was a loss there. There's something about that ancestral lineage that begins to feed, uh, be felt in our souls. The other part of this ancestral grief is that uh, when particularly the European culture arrived here, many things happened that were not good. The destruction of ecosystems, but also the uh, destruction of whole cultures. And this still lingers in our psychic inheritance. Still as some piece that we have to make some type of reconciliation with. And I can imagine grief rituals all across the country, you know, just to address that piece. Because it is part of what, we, what we're dealing with. So those are the five gates. And just as an aid to memory, uh, sort of deepening it in my own mind and, and all of us, the first is the, the loss of people we love. The second is the places in ourselves that are unloved. The third are the sorrows of the world. The fourth is what we expected and did not receive, and the fifth is the ancestral grief. Right. That first gate is not just people we've lost. Uh, some of the deepest grief that's come in my office has been when a pet has died, yeah. or when a home has been lost. Right. 
through foreclosure. I mean, currently right now, that's a, that's a significant grief that people are Absolutely. dealing with. So it's anything that we've loved. Right. I mean, in a sense, grief is the evidence of love, that we've risked loving something. Yeah. And that is the cost. That is the price we pay to enter into a loving relationship with anything or anyone. Mm. Because part of that first gate says that everything you love, you will lose. Period. No discussion. This is a fact that's very hard to embrace, but everything we love, we will lose. Either by our own disappearance or by the losses of relationships, uh, divorces, uh, deaths, moving away, we will lose everything. I'd like to ask you actually to read two Mary Oliver poems that you have here, but the first is When Death Comes, which is on page 128 of your book. You probably have a, yeah, there you have it. Yeah. Mary Oliver says, when death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity and wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common, as a field daisy, and as singular. In each name, a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. In each body, a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So beautiful. Yeah. And this, the other poem, which is one of my favorites, or at least the segment of it, is uh, from Blackwater Woods, uh, where you have on page 134 the, the key segment. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Another Mary Oliver. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read that one again. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. So powerful. Yeah. 
You know, there's a wonderful line we were talking about, Brother David Steindl Rast and, and uh, his wonderful work on gratefulness, his whole informal theology. And he has a wonderful line somewhere in his work where he says about poetry that, uh, that poetry is the only language that can carry the freight of some of the deepest matters that we seek to put into words. I like that. That's the only one that can carry the mm-hmm. freight. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why we turn to it. We turn to it all the time. Uh, and um, yeah. So we've discussed speaking of sorrow. We've discussed the five uh, gates of grief. Uh, uh, what are the rituals of renewal through which we tell the stories of sorrow? How does one approach um, finding our way in the darkness? It's a really good question. And I think the first piece that I would say is uh, don't try to do it alone. One of the most difficult inheritances we have in this culture is the idea of private pain. Uh, I had the pleasure and uh, interesting challenge of working with uh, an African teacher by the name of Maladoma Some for quite a few years. We had had a a good time working on things. But uh, he said one time when he went back to his village in Africa, And he tried to describe to the elders the idea of private pain. And the elders, he said, literally fell off their chairs and said, no wonder those people are so sick. (laughs) They think that pain belongs to themselves. Don't they know it belongs to the community? And he said, no, they don't know that. So part of the legacy of private pain is that we end up carrying our suffering with a bit of shame. Everything that we privatize tends to attract a quality of shame to it. Does that make sense? So the first thing to try to do is to begin to break the isolation, which again is what I find so attractive about Commonweal, is you break the isolation. You provide a context that allows other people to see and to sense what my experience has been and to reflect it back. The second thing we need are meaningful mechanisms for addressing what arises when true grief is present. And that means we need something capable of sustaining the most intense human emotions. And for me, this is where ritual comes in. Ritual is probably the oldest artistic form we have as a species. It's, in some ways, it's, a, it's, a, it's been called a language older than words. We've been communicating through ritual longer than we've been speaking to each other. And ritual has the capacity to contain and make safe our entry into that darkness. Outside of ritual space, it's very frightening to go there because what emerges can, and in my language I talk about uh, the value of ritual is that it allows a certain amount of derangement. And there are times we need to be deranged because the old arrangement isn't working. And we need to be rearranged in a way that's closer to how the soul wants us to be living. But if we've been carrying our grief solitary, 
if we've been living with the story of uh, there is no place to take this, we begin to tighten and hold on. So what I found in the grief rituals we've done over the past 15 years is there's a tremendous uh, freedom that begins to happen when that space is provided and you're allowing this unspoken, unmetabolized grief to finally be heard. And part of what grief, I mean, ritual also does is that it, it informs the psyche that we're entering into a different mode of behavior together. Because it's not very often that we kneel side by side at a shrine and weep and wail and holler together. That doesn't happen too often in a grocery store. Well, sometimes. At least <laughs> but what ritual does is it, it grants a permission to go there. And there's something, as I wrote in the book, something so exquisitely beautiful. And you cannot doubt the authenticity of that moment when you're watching a collective of people in all manner of expression of sorrow. It is as genuine as it gets, you know. And we've been waiting for this our whole life. There's this type of permission to enter into that collectively. Grief has never, ever in our entire history been uh, private, ever. It has always been a communal enterprise. It's been something that we carried together. And suddenly, in a very short amount of time, we're all on our own. You know, even if we get a you know, three to five day bereavement leave, you know, you still gotta go right back at it. And that is, that's an insanity. It's insane that we do that to people, to us. So those are some of the first moves I think we, we need to make. What are, the, what are the key elements in a ritual that provides the container where we can become deranged together? Well, for us, uh, having lived at a slight distance from our grief, right. we spend about two days what I call composting. And that's using various practices, writing practice, movement, to begin to gestate all of those five gates um, that are in all of our bodies and to begin to invite them into the room. And people write and read, what write and read without commentary. We're just digging the soil. And you begin to hear story after story after story, as I'm sure happens here too. And those stories themselves begin to create a space. Meanwhile, those who are working with me are very attentive to making sure that the safety is there to go there. Um, it's a scary thing. I don't want to deminimize uh, crossing that threshold. It's a very scary thing, and it needs to be well held by those who are guiding that process. So we're very attentive to that. We don't go into the ritual until the third day. So we've built up time together, and we've built up this sharing space. Uh, so you begin to have a deeper and deeper familiarity with where, where we're heading. The other thing, too, is I trust the psyche's capacity to restrain itself. It wasn't until my third grief ritual that I participated in that I shared my first tear. I was well-packed. You know, I was a well-guarded man. And it wasn't until the third time I went into that process 
that I was able to even touch. So it's, it's, it's what I call building a muscle. Grief is a muscle that we have kind of um, not tended to very well in the culture. So it's a muscle that we're beginning to have some rudimentary familiarity with again. I don't want to assume that we know all about it by any stretch. I still feel like we are very young. I got to go to uh, some of the rituals, grief rituals in Africa, and a funeral itself lasts three days. And it was astonishing to watch the whole village come. The, the body of the man or woman who died is sitting in a chair like, like me, strapped into the chair. And the family is right there grieving. And they are being very carefully watched to make sure they don't harm themselves, to make sure they have water, to make sure they take breaks. They are very well tended. Then there are the whalers who the whole community, you know, they are the ones that gets the wave going of grief. Then there are the singers and the dancers and the drummers. Then there are people sitting up on the side witnessing. And the people over here sleeping, people over here eating and drinking millet beer. But you rotate through all those positions for three days. And the beautiful uh, quality of this ritual is that they believe that the soul of the person who died can't get to the land of the ancestor without a river of tears. Now that's marked. Not only does it you know, appear to me that we're trying to tend to the soul of the one who just died, but it also gives me total permission to really acknowledge how much I am in pain about the death of this person that I loved. Yeah. You have a quote um, from an African um, elder who said, if I recall correctly, uh, about the West. Uh, no, he, he said that, that it requires a river of tears right. for the departed to reach where they're going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that was an essential dimension, that they couldn't get there if there wasn't a river of yes. tears. Yes, and I have found that same intuitive idea in many, many other cultures. So there may be some truth. In those cultures, indigenous cultures that I've studied, our grief is nourishment for the ancestors. And if we do not do our grief work, they are starving. So there's been this kind of uh, disjointed relationship between this world and the invisible world, partly because of this, what I call the ecology of the sacred. We've abandoned this ecology of the sacred where we would actually be tending both worlds by participating and offering our tears. And we were talking over lunch about a mutual friend of ours, an alum of the Cancer Help Program, actually. Uh, and I was saying how she was one of the sort of great elders of our community. And you, you knew her, and, and you had a wonderful phrase, an mm. African phrase. How does it go? Well, in, in the village in Africa, when somebody is seriously ill, they are considered a living shrine. And so they are revered. They are honored because they are standing at this threshold between this world and the other. So rather than a, a mark of shame or a, you know, whatever it is that often happens in this culture around illness, here it is turned into something quite reverential. 
You become a living shrine. And you know, that I can really see that happening in the Cancer Health Program. We do these uh, alumni days. We do these week-long retreats six times a year, and we've done about 175 of them over the last 26 years. But there are alumni days twice a year, and at almost every alumni day, there's a very remarkable presence of some number, you can't really count it, but seven, eight, or ten um, of these living shrines yeah. who are present in the room, who are sitting there right at the interface yeah. between yeah. life and death. And, yeah. and, of course, that is the shamanic position, you know, that the shaman had the initiatory illness went down to mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. gates of death, mm-hmm. uh, decided that if they ever returned, they would dedicate their lives to helping others on that journey, right. and recognized that the, great, um, uh, that the great danger was not death, but soul loss, and mm-hmm. that staying mm-hmm. connected to the soul right. was the critical, critical thing. Correct. That's a big part of that second gate loss, yeah. you know, the, the fragmentation, the, the corrosive eating away at the integrity of the, of the human being, mm-hmm. both by cultural and familial and religious and educational systems that do not coax mm-hmm. authenticity and genuineness, mm-hmm. but, but conformity. And that conforming process is a shedding. It is an exfoliation process of what is authentically me. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, we lose fragments of soul we, um, we do a ritual, I was sharing over lunch, that uh, we have been gifted with rituals over the past 15 years that I don't claim any responsibility for, but that they, they've been given to us by the dreaming earth. And these rituals are trying to suture the tears in our psychic fabric. And one of them is a reclaiming ritual and in this ritual, we go, uh, there's two thresholds. You go down, you, you're asked if you're ready to go and claim this piece of you back. And there's a place in the shrine called the wasteland. And there's one piece of your soul life that you're going down there to claim back. And the amount of grief, when you truly pick this up and you really acknowledge what it's been like to live without this, sometimes for 20, 30, 40, 50 years or longer. It is a tremendous sorrow. So when you, when you finish grieving that piece, you come back and you go through a second gate and then you place this piece of your soul life back on the shrine of beauty, which was where it should have been all along. And after the ritual's over, I say, the Dalai Lama said that the next Buddha would not come as an individual but as a community. And then I think the next shamans are not going to come as individuals, but as communities. We have just done a communal soul retrieval. There's no way I can go back and pick up every piece I've lost, but you picked up a piece for me too. And you picked up a piece for me too. And you, and you. And this collective process, this communal engagement with soul retrieval is beginning to suture our, our terrace back together. I feel much more whole now. You know, one of the experiences that I've had a few times in my life when I've been really broken open by life, once it was 10 years ago, right after a heart attack, and then more recently with um, some deep losses in my life, um, 
is that um, that one can be broken open, as you point out, to, to transformational reality. There's no question about that. But one can also, in that transformational reality, if one is unusually fortunate, be broken open to love. And the relationship of love to grief is especially interesting to yeah. me. Because my experience is that when I am truly transformatively broken, open to love, I let go of fear. Mm-hmm. Which is, and you know, that's Jerry Jampolsky's fav- famous line, you know, that love is letting go of fear. Yeah. Um, but I also find it's not only letting go of fear, it is a different relationship to the grief itself, that somehow the love sustains me and transforms the grief. It's beautiful. And I just wonder what's your experience of that? Well, what comes to mind is this uh, man I met down in Carmel. I was giving a talk to a community down there on grief. And he's, you know, about two-thirds of the way through, he raised his hand. And he said, uh, so what is the one, two, three of grief? How do I get over this? And I... And I had learned over the course of the evening that he was a scientist, and uh, but it was interesting that he was so leery of getting close to his grief. He even referred it as, I lost a friend a while ago. Turned out to be his wife. But he had to keep it at a little distance, you know, to, to risk letting it get that close would have been too much for him. So I, I sat with him for a moment and I said, you know, I, I can't accept the premise of your question. It presupposes an ending to your grief. It will not end. It'll change over time. But then I found myself saying to him, your grief is your new relationship to your wife. This is how that love will endure. It is what will continue to bring you close to her for the rest of your life, however long that is. And you could watch his face begin to soften and melt. And uh, later up came up to me and said, I think that changes everything. It's a risk, isn't it, to let this love in because we know it invites great loss. There's a profound poem from the 12th century called Ele um, Escara, which means these we remember. And it goes... Uh, Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch. To have, to dream, to hold, and oh, to lose a thing for fools, this love, but a holy thing to love what death can touch. For your life once lived in me, your laugh once lifted me, your words were a gift to me. To remember this brings painful joy. Tis a human thing, love. A holy thing to love what death can touch. Isn't that something? That's an amazing poem. They attribute it to two different people, uh, Judah of of Halevi or Emmanuel of Rome. They don't really know who wrote it. 
every time we go into grief in the, in the ritual work, it is very painful. But we're always reminded of William Blake's phrase, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. And when we work with that grief communally, it does begin to tend to mend over time. I was working with a woman once in my practice and uh, she was literally on the floor sobbing about the Iraq war and just couldn't stop crying about the depleted uranium, the lives of the people. And I let her go for a good long time and I leaned forward and I said, did you notice the plum blossoms today? She said, no. I said, did you happen to notice that the mustard was in bloom? And she said, no. I said, we can't possibly tolerate the horrors of Iraq or loss without plum blossoms and mustard. So part of our work is to, and that's what a part of I appreciated about Michael, the first time I really heard him speak, is that he is capable of holding this tension. And the tension I'm speaking of is, as adults, we're asked to carry this tension between grief and gratitude simultaneously, simultaneously. And to go into either one of those, to drop either one of those, we either are crushed by the weight and end up somewhat turning bitter or we become so idealized that we do not develop a, a heart of compassion. But the deep work of an adult human being is to be stretched by these two unavoidable dimensions. So there will be joy. You speak, uh, you speak of how hard it is to work with grief living in a, a flatline culture that avoids depth of experience. Yeah. And um, you talked a little about already about the, um, the illusion of private pain. Um, but you have two other uh, points in, in that conversation. One, which I think is particularly important, is the need to give the emotions a bottom. Yes. Um, and the second is um, the need for communal rituals, which you've also addressed a bit. But let's just talk about what you mean by uh, giving the emotions a bottom. Uh, once in my practice, I had this image of uh, a pair of hands coming together, and I was sitting with somebody who was in the midst of great grief, but was terrified to go there. And I said, we need to give your grief a bottom. Mm -hmm. And the image that came was that um, when, for instance, when you're a child and you are out playing and you fall down and you skin your knee, you come running in the house and hopefully there's a lap someplace that you can crawl into. And hopefully there's somebody who says, oh, that looks really bad. Let's, let's just blow on it. Let's kiss it, you know. It's going to be all right. Tell me how, you, you know, God, I bet that hurts. And we're allowed to feel the pain all the way to its bottom. And then we begin to come back up. 
So in a sense, what we learn is that we can trust our relationship to pain. So imagine if you are coming home after school, after the first crush has just fallen. Anybody had that happen? <laughs> you know, that first time you fell in love and uh, it was not met. <laughs> and you come home and you're heartbroken. You're in grief. And you walk in the house and you try to tell someone about it, but they either don't acknowledge it, they tease you about it, or you're ignored completely. So there you are sitting with this grief, and it's not given a bottom. So suddenly what begins to form is this relationship between grief and terror. And when we start getting close to our grief, isn't it interesting, we oftentimes feel simultaneously fear. As if I'm about to jump off an edge and there is, I'm in free fall. I can't tell you the number of times in my practice somebody will say to me, if I go there, I'm never coming back. Which is a statement of no bottom. And I tell them, if you don't go there, you're never coming back. <laughs> because there's a part of us that's locked in that space. But we have to slowly and very carefully begin to put the peers underneath this emotional space. Now this can happen to any emotion. Even our joy can have a little edge of fear to it because it wasn't given a bottom. But I think that's a very important part for us to, to notice is where do I hesitate? What room in that emotional house do I hesitate walking into? And frequently it's because there's no bottom in that room. It's, we open the door and it's free fall. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You, and, you and I uh, discovered, to my absolute joy, that um, we share uh, a passion for the work of James Hillman, yes. uh, the archetypal psychologist, the uh, Jungian, uh, brilliant Jungian. Um, what year did he die, roughly? Last October. Last October. Yeah. I never knew him. You knew him. Mm -hmm. uh, you worked with him for, what, 10 weeks at least? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's an astonishing body of work. It came out of Jung, uh, but really transformed Jung. Um, and, um, and you told me over lunch about a dream that you had. And I wondered if you would tell us that dream. Sure. In the dream, I'm sitting at a kitchen table with, with Hillman. And at some point, he stands up and walks over to a little cabinet closet, opens the door, and inside there is a small chest of drawers with very, very narrow drawers. And he would open each drawer and pull out a sheet of paper from every drawer. And then he began to read them to me. Jung, Ficino, Heraclides, Vico. And he was going on this whole list. He said, this is your family tree. These are the people that you belong to. So, so Now, what's so astonishing to me about this is that we didn't know each other. No. I mean, we knew each other. I knew your work, and, and you'd heard a little bit about me. But um, 
for the last four months, I've been completely immersed in Hillman and in this tradition. And um, so uh, we discover this. And um, it's such a rich body of work. This lineage, uh, this goes back to Heraclitus, actually, yes, really. Yes. The yeah. earliest. Greek and then form. picks up with Socrates and Plato and the Neoplatonists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And really follows this Neoplatonic tradition. Through the Renaissance. Up through the Renaissance. To and the Romantics. Through the esoteric Western masters. Yeah, and the Romantic so, poets. And yeah, and mm -hmm. the Romantic poets and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and to me, um, you speak of yourself in a beautiful line as a soul activist. Yes which is such a lovely line. Um, and to me, uh, this line of uh, Neoplatonic romantic thought is really um, the answer to the apotheosis of doubt and the enshrinement of the machine. Uh, it really is the human response saying, no, we will not be reduced to a cipher. We will not be yeah. used to that. And so for me, this, this tradition, because I, previous to being immersed in Hillman and that tradition, I'd been immersed in uh, Ibn Arabi and then Jung, the great Sufi philosopher Ibn Arabi and then Jung. And so I found myself unconsciously tracing this lineage that uh, when I finally found Hillman uh, is really the contemporary language of the soul. And you it know, is. one of the things that we were talking about is, so most of us think, okay, there's the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual. That's how we divide it up. That's our kind of mind map. But actually, Hellman's map is different from that. Mm -hmm. And this, this tradition's map is different because it distinguishes between soul and spirit. Right. So talk a little bit about the distinction between soul and spirit, which is so fundamental to this map. We have another week to meet here. <laughs> um, before I do that, I just want to just drop one thing about Hillman. One of the things I just loved about Hillman was the way in which he redeemed pathology. Mm -hmm. Because in my training in graduate studies, my work was to get rid of symptoms. That's my job. Help people get rid of symptoms. And then I bumbled into Hillman, who said that would be an abomination against that person's soul. That their symptoms is the way the soul is trying to get their attention. Symptoms are the way in which soul is addressing what has been neglected, what has been denied, what has been forgotten. For instance, he said depression is the soul's way of saying, I refuse to become a mechanism. I refuse to match the rhythm of the machine that this culture is endeavoring to idealize. And so our depression, ironically, saves us. It is the soul's protest against conscription to that ideology. Isn't that beautiful? So in that sense, soul is the experience of imminence. It is the experience of the indwelling, the incarnated, uh, embodied life. What uh, Zorba the Greek would call the whole catastrophe. It's about being here, in this flesh. And I remember spending the first, oh, I don't know, third of my life trying to transcend myself. Partly because in order to get into it, it would have been too painful. So transcendence became this other 
mode of thinking. There's nothing wrong with transcendence. Uh, spirit is the mountaintop experience. It is the keen insight. It is the perception from that elevated space. And it's brilliant and sunlit. Whereas the direction of soul is down. What was that wonderful quote you gave me about soul and spirit? Oh, Michael Mead said that uh, soul is forever trying to get spirit laid. <laughs> Soul, soul is forever trying to get spirit laid. You know? So I think that that's, that's, it. that's it in a nutshell. Uh, but I mean, the, the beauty of this is that, see, I'm really fascinated by the mind maps that we all carry around. Yeah. I think that we don't begin to be aware of how powerful these mind maps are. Absolutely. And that most of us are unconscious of our mind maps. I have been carrying around for years a wonderful mind map from psychosynthesis, from Roberto mm -hmm. Rassagioli. Mm -hmm. Lower unconscious, middle unconscious, upper unconscious, the observing point in the middle connected to the higher self above, coming out of Dante and the right. Sufi tradition right. and so on. Uh, it's a lovely map. Uh, and then I ran across Jung, and of course Jung was just incredible, but incredibly complex to yeah, try to... Yeah. And then I find Hillman, yeah. who takes the best of Jung in some respects, mm -hmm. transforms him for a new time and a new relationship to mythology, mm -hmm. because mythology itself was transforming from right. the days of Campbell and so forth to the current mythologist and fairy tale yeah. scholars yeah. and so yeah. forth in a much more postmodern polytheistic mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so all of a sudden, this immersion in Hillman transforms my mind map and coincidentally enables me to deal with this experience of being broken open yes. in a way that I would not have had accessible to me That's before. That's really right on. Right. Because part of what is redeemed in our Western imagination is darkness. Because the association, even that map of Sagioli is lower, middle, and upper. What is our association with lower? It's often inferior. Mm -hmm. It's less than. Right. It's diminished. Right. We're supposed to be going up, right? Mm -hmm. We have an ascension-oriented cosmology. Which Hillman says is very masculine. Yes. Yeah. And the descent into reclaiming darkness that the holiness also dwells in the dark. And you read two quotes that I, that I used. One is from uh, Meister Eckhart, a great German Rhineland mystic, I think in the 14th century. He said, what is this darkness? What is its name? Call it an aptitude for sensitivity which will make you whole. Call it your potential for vulnerability. That's found in the darkness. And I followed it up, so the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke adds, yet no matter how deeply I go down into myself, my God is dark and like a webbing made of a hundred roots that drink in silence. So part of the work of soul is learning once again to trust the descent. We are pulled down. I mean, when we do a grief ritual, we're pulled to our knees. We're pulled to the ground. We're in soul territory. And that's something that we have, by and large, uh, truly neglected as a culture. Like I said, we are, our, our primary archetype in this culture is the hero. And the heroic archetype is always successful, always rising. We like things going up. 
We get a little anxious when things go down. You know, we have entire industries right now to make sure that we can keep it, you know, keep it going up. So what's, what is it about the descent? What is it about things falling? What is it about things going downward that we are anxious about? And that's a lot of what I think my work is about, is reclaiming the, the sacredness of the, of the darkness. You're working on a new book now. Could you tell us a little about it? Yeah, that makes it a commitment, doesn't it? Um, it's called uh, A Trail on the Ground, uh, Tracking the Ways of Our Indigenous Soul. And that uh, all of us have, you know, some aspect of soul life that is deeply entwined with those roots and with ritual life and with beauty and with... Uh, a longing and a desire to participate in communal life. That's part of the indigenous soul. So I'm trying to, uh, in the writing, recreate what I would call the original arc of our belonging. Um, That arc of belonging is not simply uh, myself. I also anticipated belonging to the village but I also anticipated belonging to the redwoods and the dug fir and the pileated woodpecker, you know. But I also anticipated belonging to the cosmos. In the Middle Ages, they tried to come up with an image to depict the grandeur of the soul, and the image they came up with was the night sky. That's how big we are. That's our natural inheritance. So what I'm trying to do is, in a sense, reimagine identity as a wild swirling of interrelated pieces of life. So we, I, I come out of mystery. I don't know where I come from, but somehow I ended up here, you know, squalling and peeing and all kinds of things into this body. This body emerged into this family. This family was embedded in a community in a sacred cosmology, that community then would um, activate clan life because we all have spiritual obligations and responsibilities. And out of that, I would feel my weddedness to the cosmos. That's me. Do you get how big that identity is? We become immense. It's a wonderful little poem by Hafiz. He said, the small man builds cages for everyone he meets while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps throwing keys everywhere he goes to the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. You know? We are immense. But we've lost cosmos, we've lost clan, communities become kind of a rhetorical idea, uh, family has been fragmented. All of a sudden, I'm only left with me. And I wonder why I feel so lonely and so impotent and so isolated. Well, I've lost four-fifths of my identity. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So that's part of what the book is is trying to do, is trying to reclaim the the full arc of our identity. And then I lay out 10 practices that uh, I think are native to to the soul as a way of helping to reclaim that. Thank you. I want to acknowledge uh, a beloved friend of my, two beloved friends of mine, uh, Charles and Veronique Fox. Saturday would have been Charles's 70th birthday uh, if he were alive. His, 
His wife, Veronique, is, is with us today. Um, and um, I just want to tell a little story about them. Um, I met Charles almost 40 years ago when I moved to Bolinas, and he was just beginning to walk with a cane because of multiple sclerosis. And I watched him become quadriplegic. He was a remarkable writer, an astonishing human being. He was my best friend in Bolinas. Mm. And I watched him over 20 years become uh, quadriplegic in a wheelchair. And uh, 20 years ago, uh, he met Veronique, uh, who, uh, who married him uh, while he was uh, quadriplegic. And, and single-handedly, I'm sorry, it makes me cry. Single-handedly kept him alive for 20 years, um, longer than he would have lived. And um, they created a household together in Bolinas that was full of light and joy. And people came not out of any sense of feeling um, sorry for Charles, uh, but because there was just so much light in this household. So Charles died um, about a year ago, and, um, and Vero and I had the experience of kind of getting broken open in different ways at, at the same time. And, and so we started to take walks together. We were both kind of blown out. Um, she by Charles's death and me by just a series of losses and experiences in my life. Mm. And, um, and you talk about how you can't do this alone. Um, you need to do it in the company of others. And so we kept each other company um, through some of this. Um, yes. So in December, Vero's going to leave for France. And in March or April, on the anniversary of Charles's death, it was less than a year ago that he died, um, she is going to set out to walk the thousand kilometers of the Camino del, what's it called? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, the Camino del Santiago, mm -hmm. which is the, mm -hmm. the, the sacred pilgrimage trail yeah. across yes. Uh, yes. Europe. Um, as, um, as, uh, so I, uh, sorry to be reduced to tears, but I am reduced to tears because that's why we are. Um, that's why we're here, isn't yeah. it? That's part of Commonweal. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, these are two people that I really loved. And um, Vero is somebody that continues to accompany me, and I hope to continue to accompany her. Um, you talk beautifully about how grief and loss weave itself in and out of the fabric of our lives, you know. And, and it's so true that the risk of loving is just so fierce, such a fierce risk. It is. And imagine life without that risk. Yeah. yeah. Questions, comments? You said in your new book that you're going to address the ten practices that you... Would you want to share perhaps one or two with us today? Um, <laughs> I, I can give you what we're going to be looking at. One of them is silence. It, we are a uh, obsessively noisy culture. 
and make very little room for silence. A deep enough silence to begin to hear where's uh, the plant person here? There you are. You have to get very silent, don't you? To hear the voice of the plants. Yeah. So just learning how to practice silence. And it's, in, it's not just auditory silence, but it's visual silence. All of the senses have a silence to them. You know, we spend our day in front of a screen or watching TV. What do your eyes feel like at the end of that day? Huh? They're in pain. What the eyes want is the silence of the night sky or the silence of sitting by a brook. So there's a silence. It is not an absence, but it's a permission. It's an engagement. It's a conversation going on without my active participation. Gratitude is a key practice to recovering our indigenous soul. We, uh, every year we do a, a three-day gratitude ritual the weekend before Thanksgiving. and Families have been coming to this now for 12, 13 years. And I often tell uh, the people this, the story that when the first Thanksgiving happened um, in the 1500s, the pilgrims didn't know that the indigenous people there had a Thanksgiving gathering every other month. You know, they thought, this is cool. You know, let's, let's do this once in a great while. But for them, it was part of the rhythm. You know, you repeatedly say thank you because they lived in what uh, Paul Shepard calls a gifting cosmos. And what's the proper response to a gift? Thank you. You know, Meister Eckhart said that the only prayer you ever uttered was thank you, that would suffice. You know? So it's a listing of these different practices that we can begin to bring into our, our daily life. Wildness is another practice. It's, uh, domestication is a great uh, pain to the soul. Mm. The soul is wild. You know, it's interesting just to reflect on the the gifts and challenges of domestication, how do you say it? Domestication. Domestication. The gifts and challenges of domestication. I was just thinking of the domestication of grains, you know? And uh, we're still not actually well adopted to eating grains, right? No. Uh, but that domestication of life that took place with the agricultural revolution, um, is in many respects the, the revolution in human organization that we're still struggling with at so many levels, spiritual, mm -hmm. psychological, mm -hmm. right. nutritional, physical, right. everything else. Right. Right. Uh, we weren't designed to do this, you know? Uh, no. We were not originally designed to do this. No. And so many of the deepest hungers of the human soul reflect that uh, space that we lived in for countless eons before we decided That's to right. grow our food. That's that fourth gate of grief. Yeah. Now it's wired into us. Yeah. There's a wonderful, do people know Paul Shepard? A name that's familiar to anybody? Yeah. He was a, what he kind of calls himself, a human biologist. And what his fascination was, was with that ancestral story, mm. the deep time story of our species. And he said we kind of apexed during the uh, Pleistocene era. And we've been in downhill ever since then. But I, I remember reading a quote, a quote of his, or he was in an inter interview, and uh, Shepard said that 
the grief and sense of loss that we often attribute to a failure in our personality is actually an emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness was meant to be encountered. And then a gorgeous just came out of his mouth, you know. I promise I will say, say that it again. again. Yeah. He said the grief and sense of loss. And this is where it gets tricky because this is what we do. We blame ourselves, which we often attribute to a failure in our personality. I've done something wrong to be isolated in the cosmos. The grief and sense of loss that we often attribute to a failure in our personality is actually an emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness was meant to be encountered. And that could be in you. You could be that beautiful and strange wild otherness. It doesn't have to be, you know, a hawk or a fox. Or the other day we were driving on the mountains up here in, on uh, Mount Tamina, mountain lion. Ran across the road. What was, what's the name of the road? Bolinas Fairfax. Fairfax Oh, you came over the Bolinas Fairfax Road. Wow. All right. A beautiful and strange otherness crossed our, our path. Yeah. You know, uh, coming back to Hillman for a moment, then we'll come to some more questions. Um, the... I'm fascinated by the relationship between, um, between wisdom and love. So our friend and colleague, uh, Rachel Naomi Remen, has this beautiful line, which is very ancient, but she says it so beautifully. She says, the purpose of life is to grow in wisdom and to learn to love better. Right? And so that's a very ancient teaching. You know, it goes all the way back in all the traditions. But that relationship of wisdom and love is so fascinating because, you know, so for example, you think in the, in the yoga tradition of, um, of jnana yoga, which is the yoga of wisdom, and uh, bhakti yoga, which is the yoga of devotion, and right. karma yoga, which is the yoga of service, service and will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for a long time, by temperament, I was drawn to the jnana yoga wisdom tradition. It wasn't that I didn't have a good heart. But that was the tradition that I could really work in and worked in through the Cancer Help Program Mm -hmm. for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And then this breaking open experience opened me to this experience of some sense of, uh, that I hadn't experienced. I'd read people saying that the universe was, you know, was made of love, but I hadn't had that experience. I didn't have the felt experience of that. So for somebody who for 68, 69 years of their life comes from the wisdom side of the equation to get broken open, as happens so often with grief, to a completely new experience of the world, right? A completely new experience of it. And then to try to make sense of it and to navigate because the navigation in that world is a wholly different thing. All the, you know all the cautions and everything else that I'd been navigating with through the the wisdom tradition needed to come to grips with uh, what I was opening to. And it seems to me that brings us right back to the core of the work that that you do with grief. Well, in a sense, you were deranged. I was absolutely deranged, yeah. And, And that derangement you know, knocked you off of a familiar pedestal. Absolutely. A place of 
position, a fixed position. And the position. same thing happened 10 years ago with my yeah. heart attack, yeah. so it wasn't the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So I was familiar with the derangement, uh, but somehow it was more powerful even um, than after the heart attack. Mm -hmm. yeah. It opened you to the idea that... It wasn't, didn't open me to an idea, it opened me to an experience of... Um, of the side of the universe that is described by the mystics of, uh, of that the universe is made of love. So I don't know what it means. I, I'm, still, I'm still in the navigational process, but what I know is that, as you said, uh, uh, Francis, that, uh, that in some sense I was deranged yes. by that. Yes. And fortunately, I'm functional. I'm able to work and, you know, you know, walk around in the world and make sense of things. But there's an underlying sense that I encountered something new that is infinitely precious. Yeah. And you speak of that in, in, mm -hmm. in your book, you know, The Pearl of Infinite Wisdom. Yeah. Uh, in fact, why don't you say a little bit about how that pearl is, is formed and, and what that's about? This comes, the image comes from alchemy. And the alchemists, for people familiar with that tradition, uh, we're really in this conundrum of wisdom and trying to decipher the core element of the, of the world. Um, which made me think of one thing around trying to figure this out. In Maladoma's village, they have a word, it's, it's called yilbangura. And yilbangura means the things that knowledge cannot eat. You know, there are things that we will not figure out we will live into. And that's part of when we're deranged, we're now living into the rearrangement of that space. But Hillman's image, uh, he picked up from the alchemists of the pearl of great price, was that the pearl begins as a bit of grit, an irritant, you know, something that deranges, that annoys, that you know, gets our attention. And through a prolonged period of attention, not figuring it out, but almost a devotional attention to that thing that has gotten into your shoe. That slow process slowly emerges into the pearl. The alchemists were very wise though. They said, well, it doesn't stop there. The pearl must be pried up out of the darkness and worn on the skin because a pearl requires the skin to keep its luster. And now it has become something that is seen in the world. It's, a, it's a, uh, a piece of beauty and devotion that has now become a medicine for the world. Mm. Yeah. I just think that's so beautiful. It's a gorgeous yeah. metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions, comments? Yes, right here, this gentleman. Thank you. Um, I've been grieving for a while the loss of my wife. And from this vantage point, when I look back over the last nine months, it does surprise me that I did not go mad. But at the time, I didn't think I was. I, w I wonder what is the difference between the time now when I look back and think, my goodness, I did almost go mad, and the time when I was going mad but didn't recognize it, but didn't feel that way. In many, did everybody hear the question? Why don't you repeat it? He said his wife died about nine months ago, and from this vantage point now, looking back, you're wondering whether why you didn't go mad. 
because um, at that beginning stage, it feels pretty crazy. Yeah. What's you know, what, I, what I've just been researching how cultures have dealt with that. That period of time immediately following a death, many cultures call it a time of living in the ashes. When everything turns to ash, everything goes down to its most bare substance, powdery, almost non-existent. Part of what happens for us in this culture that makes us feel as if something's off is that we end up not being supported in that time in the ashes. For instance, in the Scandinavian cultures, when they lived in longhouses together, they would literally have a row of fires down the middle of the longhouse. And when you went through a death, you lived next to the fires in the ashes. And you put the ashes on your body. And in a sense, you were marked. So nothing would be expected of you for a year. But you would be supported and held. So when the bottom went out like that, you weren't in free fall. You were held while you had to do the hard work of grieving. That was your spiritual responsibility, was to grieve. Because the ones who come back from that journey become a precious thing to the community. You get what I'm saying? You know, it's, it's our avoidance, in a sense, of going into those spaces that kind of makes us shallow in the long run. We turn cold and somewhat bitter. The, the love doesn't break us open, you know. So I want to honor that you've been on this journey and hopefully getting a lot of support for that ash work. Good. But it is a deranged time. It really is. Question here. You have talked about how there is a need to put a bottom to the emotion. Yes. And you made the example very clear when we're little and we're being held that so physically, so as adults, <laughs> how do we put a bottle on part of ourselves? Because mm -hmm. that's what it comes down to many times. We have well, it's a very good question. The question was uh, that I talked about giving a bottom to an emotion as a child, and how do we do that as an adult? I would still say. Hey, keeping to the metaphor, find a lap to crawl into. You know, it's very hard to do this work alone. And to be able to let somebody know, today, as Pablo Neruda said, today, I'm simply in pain. And just let that pain be present and you don't have to do anything. You get to be with what's there and to begin to have a relationship to that state. Because part of it is that we fear going near it because we're all alone with it. So I, I would hope you have one or two good friends that you can say to them, I need you just to sit with me today and maybe even hold me while I go into this difficult territory. That's what I would hope for you. There was a question back there. Oh, okay, other questions? Yes, Cynthia. Um, just with communities becoming more and more globalized and even rituals being commercialized now, you know, you can pay yeah. people to pray or to wail for your beloved. Um, I guess 
do you see the only way to sort of reclaim this is to go back to traditional rituals, or do you have any visions for a new type of expression in our modern world of ritual? I think the soul really wants the sensuous experience of togetherness. So I'm not opposed to those practices, but I really trust that what the soul wants is to see Michael, when Michael shared his tears. We probably wouldn't have got that if we were just typing it in. I'm crying right now. Um, there's something about the sensuous encounter with that that touches our soul. You know, they talk about the mirror neurons. Have you heard about that whole research on the mirror neurons? Something reflects back to us of our own tenderness, our own loss. I don't think we can just import other traditions' rituals. We have to be courageous to dream our own rituals. Um, when 9-11 um, happened, my son had just moved to New York City to go to Sarah Lawrence. And so two weeks after he moved there, boom. And Judith and I went out there a month later and he took me downtown and to get as close as we could, but everywhere we went were shrines. Everywhere. The human instinct to acknowledge. And then there, there are gatherings in parks everywhere. People singing together, sitting together quietly, praying, meditating. They were doing their ritual practice. This is instinctive. We don't have to kind of uh, always go back, but we have to remember that this is part of who we are. This is part of who we are. And then a few weeks after that, we were told to go shopping and go to war. <laughs> a slight deviation. I mean, we had a moment. There was a window of opportunity to go into the depth and have our hearts broken as a culture and to lament what just happened and to really grieve together. And unfortunately, we made another move, you know. Did I answer your question? Okay. Other questions? Yes, Penny. Um, well, I was going back a little ways when you were talking about wild, being wild as one of the practices in your new book. Mm -hmm. and, um, I'm curious about that word, and I'm wondering about exploring it. Um, because the indigenous people of this area had no word That's for right. wild or wilderness. That's right. mm -hmm. And then when we think about wild in our culture, we think about, you know, kind of out of control, crazy, hectic. And then when you go into the wild of the wilderness here, it's actually the opposite. It's very calm and, you know, you, I often get an experience of this kind of sublime perfection and unity. So I'm just curious about the relationship to wild as it sits with the work you're doing. And just because, uh, I'll ask you to repeat the question too, but I, I think that's a particularly beautiful question, the different meanings of wild, because we use it as a, you know, as a reference point, actually in this tradition, mm -hmm. a good deal. And Penny has pointed out at least three different meanings of wild, so I think it's a wonderful question. The, the question was, I used the word wild before, about the new book that's coming out. And how did I mean that? There's, you know, the, the indigenous people here did not have a word for wild or wilderness. And 
the worries that we've used it here have to do being out of control. So she was curious about my... And then there's going into nature where it's peaceful, and right. yet we think right. of it as the wild. Right. So three distinct meanings. Yeah, I go back to Thoreau's idea of wild, which is a past tense of will. Self-willed is wild. You know, nature is self-willed. It isn't shaped by some external uh, construct. It is itself thoroughly. What would it look like for human beings to be themselves as thoroughly as we could? That would be being wild, you know, authentic, genuine. You know, that we are stepping out and part of the beauty of, of nature is that we are moved by its display. And I think that's what we're being asked to do too, is kind of shimmy a little bit and shake our tail feathers and, you know, show who we are. But we're a culture very steeped in shame. And shame and wild do not go well together. Then we get enraged behavior, which is out of control. We burn things down. We tear things apart. But wild is very, you know, life-affirming. Is that? Yeah. I saw a thumb up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. You're welcome. Yeah. Kenyon. Uh, <clears throat> you spoke about uh, African relatives and their three days and nights of crossing over. Touches me with the similarities because in our culture, we give four days and nights, and after that, we don't mention their name anymore. Mm -hmm. Cross them over. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the cross similarities in the cultures across the nation. You know, around the world, we didn't have those ways, but uh, I could go deep into it. Our people, we cried those tears. That's for right. Days and nights. That's right. If you cry more than that, you'll make too big a river and make it hard for them to get across. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we cease with those tears. Mm -hmm. We're also taught that those tears are sacred. Because yes. tonight, when you look at the sky, all of your relatives, the star people you see, this is our only home with many Wachojine, water of life. Your spirit knows many things but has no feeling. This is a, a spirit body to feel things. When my spirit is touched in a beautiful way, something sacred happens. You make water. Nowhere out there is there any. Nowhere can you make water like that. And it's pure as from your heart. So it's very sacred. Remember when you make those tears. Mm -hmm. But only make them for four days. Mm -hmm. oh. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Only. Other questions? I just want one more okay. comment to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, what you're saying is very important because part of what happens is that we linger in that grief territory far too long at times. And partly because we didn't have that ritual space. So we have kind of prolonged, undigested sorrow lingering in our bones. And what's beautiful about a lot of these traditions is that, for instance, even in current rituals in New Orleans, when the funeral is going into the cemetery, the family's leading the way, and the band is playing the dirge, a very melancholy, sound. After the funeral is over, the procession changes. 
The band is now leading the way out. The family's following them and they're playing the saints go marching in. Our job is not to get lost in grief. Our job is to do a good job of grieving so we can come back to life. You know? Yeah. My son dad's 18 years too. When we're tied to that tree, those four days and nights, we get no water, mm-hmm. no shade. Mm-hmm. So we know both sides of life. Because yeah. a man never felt the cutting of the cord that he was giving that gift. So that's what that rope is. So we know that much about this gift here. Yeah. Terry. Um, I had a question <clears throat> that keeps kind of evolving. I think the part of it is um, complicated grief. Like there's the grief of loss where you've been broken open and your heart, you know, and, and, and you can grieve wholeheartedly. But I think often, um, and we're talking about communities and stuff, and often pe- people, um, I know I feel it somewhat myself, and then I have friends who do too, feel somewhat estranged from our family of origin, and so there can be a grief that's very complicated because mm-hmm. it felt mm-hmm. like within life the love never was able to be mm-hmm. fully mm-hmm. expressed. And uh, um, I have a friend right now whose mother's dying, and she's not sure she's going to go back. And mother's totally miserable, and they've always had a very miserable relationship. And yet, she's going to grieve deeply for her mother. I mean, she's grieving not only her mother's death, but you know, really her mother's the, the absence of that relationship, the yes. absence of the bottom that you speak of, yes. um, that wasn't there for her to crawl into her lap. Yeah, she said something about complicated grief. Yeah, just that when there are circumstances in some lives where we can't directly address the source of that grief. Like your friend can't, doesn't feel like she can go back to deal with this with her mother who's dying. And I feel, I mean, my mother is alive, but we have a complicated relationship and I know that if I were to lose her now that my grief would be very complicated. It often is. And it needs to be honored. And it needs to be respected. Uh, Part of our spiritual responsibility, again, is to honor the griefs that we're given. We often don't get to choose what those griefs are. They come to us, unbidden, you know. But they are ours, they're yours. To carry with as much uh, compassion and community as possible. I was thinking about a man that I worked with some years back, whose wife had died eight years prior. And uh, one day I said to him in, in, in the session, I said, I think you're hiding in your grief. And he looked pretty startled, because who the hell was I to tell him that he was hiding in his grief? I said, I don't know why I'm saying this to you, but I get this feeling that you have found a good cover And who could challenge you? You have the absolute legitimate sorrow. But I think you have found a safe way to hide from having to risk loving again. And he paused and said, I think you're right. So he happened to be part of a men's community. I, I lead men's initiation work and he was part of one of the clans and we gathered his brothers together and we did a ritual. One of the men built a little coffin to, uh, for, to say goodbye to his wife. 
And on the, in the coffin, he put this list of the days of sorrow. These are the, this is how he lived his year. The day the diagnosis was made, the day the, uh, they told the children, the day the uh, terminal diagnosis was given, the day she entered the hospital, the day she died. This is how he lived his life. Understandably. But again, it became this place where he found shelter from having to risk love again. And in fact, your book starts with this quote from Terry Tempest William, grief dares us to love once more. That's right. That's right. So he had to set, set her down. I said, you know, this is where she lives. You live here in this world. And it's time to make that pivot and come back to life. And he made another gesture of offering to a, a fire of commitment. You know, Rachel Naomi Remen has one other line about grief that has always stayed with me, which she, she spe speaks of grieving as a sorting process. Mm. Uh, what we actually have to give up and what we actually don't have to give up or yeah. what remains with us in some other way. Yeah. And, you know, I'm fascinated by uh, encounters like Rumi's encounter with Shams, like Dante's encounter with Beatrice, yeah. like Paul's encounter with the living Christ on the road to Damascus. And in each case, if you think about those three, there is this stunning encounter, which in Rumi's case, he was a great scholar, transformed him into a poet of love. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, Dante, he only sees Beatrice three times, but it creates the divine comedy and his whole life work. And in Paul's case, he doesn't even meet Jesus, but he has this direct experience of the living Christ, mm -hmm. which creates Pauline Christianity. And, and what is striking about all of these, and Hillman talks about this too, is that in each case, there is the living person who's real, but there's also the archetype, the living archetype that is fused with the person and that fused archetype becomes uh, what transforms the life. In other words, the, the person leads, leads in these cases to a transformational experience where, where the transformation no longer be belongs in the dyad. The transformation mm -hmm. is in fact universal. Mm -hmm. um, and so coming back to Terry Tempest Williams, uh, you know, that we are, are dared to love again. Um, when that is taken to its most powerful level, it seems to me that we are dared to understand why we are here. Um, and we are dared, in Hillman's sense, to understand the particular acorn of our soul with which we are born and what it is for better or for worse, that we were given to manifest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I talk about it in, in the language of uh, the third body, that between you and I right now, there's this otherness mm -hmm. here, mm -hmm. helping to inspire, exactly. move, mm -hmm. evoke, cajole mm -hmm. the conversation. Mm -hmm. In a marriage or any deep friendship, the third body invites us uh, to learn to love. So when I look at my wife, I'm not just seeing her. My love doesn't congeal at her backbone, but she becomes a window through which I love everything standing behind her. In a sense, 
I am being invited through that love to fall in love with the world. Exactly. That, I think, is the invitation. Exactly. It is not to, you know, to particularize. Well, it is both to particularize and then to extend. Exactly. So that I fall in love with the blue of the sky and everything, everything that is engendered by loving this woman or a friend. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to stay small. Right. Like Rumi, when he lost Shams, that whirling, whirling, you know, wild, ecstatic state of missing became his love poetry, you know. Francis Weller, thank you for being with us at the New School. It's been a deep privilege, and I really enjoyed you. Thank you so much.